Hello and welcome to the Critical Channel, a show about engineering leadership, culture, architecture, and several others of those very easy problems to solve. With Kieran Patel, Maxine Kravitz, Pedro Carvalho, and me, Italo Vietro. In this week's topic, we're going to talk about migrations. I really hope you enjoy it. Tell us about houses that are smaller than my house, even oh my smaller God, than my apartment. It's amazing. It's the best thing ever. Like, I was actually, I actually follow this this channel in YouTube. I think it's like living big in a tiny house or something. Um, and it's from New Zealand and, and they have this movement there of, you know, tiny houses and, and everything that looks super cool. And one day I was looking into into one of their setups and I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. It's like a, it's like a smart home in a tiny house being carried uh, with a with a, a Ford uh, 150 and, and the car the car was amazing. I was like, great, I need this. I need this. And they were traveling traveling all all over New Zealand and you know they work remotely so that allows them to do that. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I went to see the prices of that thing. I was like, okay, that is um, that is the price of a house, a normal one, but tiny. It's like it's super expensive. It's like written and in a very small font. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> but it was great, and you know, like you can in Europe, the regulation is not really set yet, so everything is kind of like in the air. If you can or cannot have a tiny house, what is the size that you can actually have a tiny house? Um, where can you park it? etc. Um, in the US and in New Zealand, that's much more defined, which is great. Um, but I know in France, there is a company that does tiny houses the way you want. So you just send them, okay, I want a tiny house like this with this material, um, this kind of things, and they will build up with all the European standards and blah, blah, blah. And you can have it for simply starting at 70k. I was like, okay, that is a, that is a, that is an interesting price. Um, so it's starting at that point and then it can, you know, it can range over to like, it can go over to like 150 or 200 if you want to, um, quite easily, um, depending on the materials that you choose, but it's amazing. Tiny houses are amazing. I, one day my dream is I'm going to have a tiny house traveling around Europe somewhere and I'm going to have a coffee shop somewhere in Portugal making very good coffee. Making tiny coffee. Making tiny coffee, yes. And traveling Europe making with tiny my tiny house and coming back. Donata. Yes. Serving tiny, tiny sandwiches to people. Yes. And the, the price is going to be tiny as well. So we're going to be good. <laughs> Definitely. So yeah, I mean, tiny houses, that's, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the future. Let me put it like this. That's the future. Um, but I still have to work a lot to get one. There's actually a German company making those. And yeah, it, I saw it. It has few, yellow actually. in its name and I cannot find it. I think it just I shared in the chat the, no, no, the what, bar provider. The, <laughs> yeah, what's in the chat? Unfortunately, that's the wrong link. That's just an electricity provider yellow <laughs> yeah but they have a similar name and i think that their houses start at around 20 25k oh that's a good price but but again th those are tiny i'm just yeah. dreading the amount of regulations there are in germany for that 
Oh, man. I'm not even thinking of getting a tiny house and I'm already terrified of, of going to the, the Kleiner house armed and <laughs> having to get the <laughs> right permits and everything. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I bet yeah, there I mean, is one. The guy that I saw, um, his tiny house in New Zealand, like it, it was very tiny. I think you had like, I don't know, 20 something square meters. And, um, but the guy had a, let's say a split toilet, right? So he had like half of the toilet was just the toilet itself in one side. It was a composting toilet. And on the other side was the bath or, well, actually just shower. Not really, you can't really fit a bath. Um, so it was like, okay, you get into the tiny house and you turn left, you have the toilet, you turn right, you have the shower. If you go straight, then you have, um, you have the beginning of the kitchen, which has a simple, I think it's, I I don't even know the name. Induction, is that it? The induction, induction hob thing. Yeah. All right. There we go. So this is it. And the guy had that. And uh, a small, yeah, a small dishwasher and a very cool wooden um, cabinet and a wooden um, thingy where you can cut the, 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 the vegetables and stuff. And it was beautiful. And then you just walk a little bit further and you have this huge bed, which you can, you know, you can bring it up and underneath it, you have all the storage you need. And then you bring it down and you have this very nice area super cozy with nice television and everything and an xbox and i was like great that's life so you go somewhere and then you play xbox inside whatever place you have um and yeah and when you arrive in whatever you know whatever um parking place you want uh he has this interesting tent that comes out of the whatever the the top of the the top of the the house and then you have an extensible area where you can enjoy summer, which is great. And the price of that was not very expensive. I think the whole house was like $72 US. That was pretty okay. 72000 For... 72, I hope. Yeah, 72000 sorry. If it was $72, $72, then I'm paying far too much. On my <laughs> yeah, guys, I just found a German company that makes uh, these tiny houses. And its name is yellow, and in fact, it's the same yellow as that electricity provider. What? Really? Yeah. So here's the YouTube video. Do you oh, get a discount on your uh, like so electricity? So if you have yellow, if you have yellow, you have a discount on the on the tiny I house. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> so they sell power and also tiny houses. That's amazing. Yeah. They only sell oh, tiny cool. power though. Tiny power. <laughs> yeah, because your tiny house doesn't need more, right? Exactly. Like Oh god, this is great. Actually, that's You very get nice. you get US power. You only <laughs> you don't get you don't get the full 230 volts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually funny, but that's sort of common misconception. They actually do have 240 volts when they use two phases at once. That's how their stoves work because if you want to have a stove that works on 110 volts, good luck. It's going to be a shitty stove. Mm. As shitty as their kettles are, that are like super slow. It doesn't, it doesn't help me charge my phone when I'm over there. Uh, yeah, but I like this. I didn't know yellow. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Power so, providing was suddenly doing tiny houses. Yeah, I'm watching this uh, YouTuber Alexi Bexi, funny mm. German guy, does reviews of, of 
bunch of other things, mostly phones and something that he calls Hinashrot, uh, basically like some cheap okay. Chinese knockoffs of good things. And then suddenly he does like a Halloween life video and he talks about tiny houses. And then he shows that he actually is doing this from a tiny house. Uh, like the whole cool. life thingy for like two hours. Actually, can we talk about cheap Chinese knockoffs for a minute? Sure. <laughs> because I I almost did something really stupid uh, this week or last week or whenever it was. Um, I decided that it was time to throw out all of the screwdrivers that I have accumulated over the years. Uh-huh. None of which were good. I've had... I even found two of these screwdrivers. They're actually still in a pile behind me right now. I found two of these screwdrivers that I've had since I was nine years old. Oh, wow. And they were oh. magnetic once, and now all the magnetic stuff is just gone. Um, I have one screwdriver that I bought off Amazon because I lost another screwdriver that was very good, and uh, that was never magnetic, even though it said on Amazon that it was magnetic, and I couldn't be bothered to dispute it, so I rubbed a magnet on it for a bit, and that didn't that, that worked for like three hours. Um, I have other screwdrivers that have come from Ikea or something just in the bag, and I've gone, well, I'm keeping that, obviously, because it's a free (laughs) screwdriver. Yeah, better than nothing. (laughs) Right? And I've just, I I got fed up. I don't even remember what I was trying to do. I was was screwing something, take that as you like, uh, and I got fed up, and I just said, right, I'm getting rid of all of these, and I'm just buying an iFixit kit, and that is going to be my screwdriver. And halfway through me trying to buy it, I found myself on AliExpress trying to find like a cheap Chinese knockoff of an iFixit kit, which is just completely counterintuitive given that the whole thing I'm trying to do is get rid of these like crappy products yeah. and go, okay, I just want one good quality product and instead I'm going to get like... <laughs> and then you end up in AliExpress. Uh, yeah, and then I'm on AliExpress looking for like a, a $13 iFixit kit or something. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't do that. Like, well, I've exactly. Had- I didn't. I got the. Uh, I got the real one. But like, I don't understand how anyone doing a review of, for example, a thirteen dollar version of an iFixit kit, how that review is not going to end with, it's a thirteen dollar iFixit kit. What do you expect? Yes, like, it always ends with that. Reviews are weird. People do them for all kinds of reasons and have all kinds of agendas. Honestly, yeah. most of the time, I just don't. Don't watch them. I uh, I don't know. I just I feel like there's something like to reviews, be but... there's something to be said for getting the quality item and the the kind of name brand like original thing. And there's a line that I'll draw. Like I'm I'm not gonna go out and buy designer clothes because I'm not. I look at me. I'm wearing my free launch darkly T-shirt that I got from a conference <laughs> sometime. God knows when. Um, I'm not designer clothes guy. Um, this is a nice T-shirt though. Uh, it this, is. This episode yeah. sponsored by Launch Darkly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't buy like some random Chinese knockoff graphics card to put in my computer, for example. Right. I, it's just interesting yeah, I where, mean, where I, the line is neither. for different people. Yeah. But then at some point, I guess the super low price makes the difference for a lot of people. I guess it depends Even, what you're looking for. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, I that's mean, true, if, you, but... if you're buying, if you're buying like a white shirt, you know, like that normally is going to get us some stains over it. You're like, yeah, you can pay, you can pay less for that, right? Like, because it's easy, you can just renew it. But if you're looking for a screwdriver, well, 
you might want to get the good thing before you actually have to buy like tons of that. I mean, I, you know, I've been fine for, like I say, I had two of these screwdrivers. They came free with the magazine. I remember getting that magazine. It was a magazine about building a robot. And I got it when I was nine years old. And I've had these two screwdrivers ever since. Those and might be good, though, because back in the day, they were making them much better. They were they were good, but now yeah. they've just kind of been ruined over the past... I don't want to think how many years that is. <laughs> um, too many years, but they've been... Uh, yeah, they've just been ruined over time, but that's fine. But if... You know, if, if... I'm fine. I've been fine with the screwdrivers that I've had. I think I've paid for screwdrivers like once or twice in the past and they've been fine. But sometimes you just go, you know what? I'm too old for, for the calluses on my hand from turning these screwdrivers. I've got one that's so badly injection molded. There's like <laughs> fl a flappy bit of plastic on the top where it's just not been, where the, uh, the mold hasn't been airtight, I guess. And like, there's just a bit of plastic waving. I don't know. This went horrendously off topic from tiny houses. <laughs> yeah. I do have some I tiny mean, screwdrivers. I don't know if that brings it back. You can use the <laughs> screwdrivers to actually build a tiny house. Oh, using so tiny screws. <laughs> using tiny screws. Oh, God. <laughs> this is getting out of hand. Okay, then. How do we transition to migration? What were you we talking about again? It's migration and, and So, other I mean, okay. Well, migrating from a normal house to a tiny house is traumatic. Speaking of trauma, segue, data migrations. <laughs> there, we go. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, so, I mean, we're all kind of well-versed in the kind of topics of operations and how to, how to run things and build things the, the right way. Um, but a question that often comes up, and I think something that, that's not a solved problem. I mean, if it, is, if it is a solved problem and you have a product for this, then please tell me. I will, I will throw money at you. But, uh, you know, we're all good at doing blue-green deployments or canary deployments and being able to, like, very quickly and easily roll back most stuff. Or uh, shout out again to the guys at LaunchDarkly who did not sponsor us, but they are sponsoring my T-shirt right now <laughs> um, in terms of feature flags. But that there becomes a type of deployment or something where it's very difficult to roll that back or to, to have kind of a backup plan for that, right? Um, that might be you're moving huge amounts of data around. Uh, it might be a migration that takes a long time. There might be a lot of dependencies. You might have to deploy several things at the same time in order for this migration to go well. Um, and I... The question was, how do we deal with them? When do you give up and say, okay, there's going to be downtime for this one? How do you have? How do you make rollback roll plans for that? Uh, wow, English is very hard sometimes, guys. I don't know if you noticed. No. Nope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Story and of yeah, my just life. just all that jazz, basically. So uh, I don't know if anybody has anything to say on gigantic migrations. I love gigantic migrations. Like, honestly, no, <laughs> there's always one. There's, there's, there's the guy. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> there, there is a very good reason to love gigantic migrations. And I have to say that I love a very specific kind of gigantic migrations. I love gigantic migrations that are the, the, the ones that you can do without having downtime in any part of your system. That, that's what I love them for. 
Like usually mm. if it's gigantic, you cannot afford to just turn something off, do your gigantic migration over a period of two weeks and then turn everything back on. You need another plan which will allow you to do this migration live. And I love those because you can do them during normal hours. You don't have to plan a night shift. You don't have to like keep people after hours and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, yes, they are much more challenging. And I guess we'll go over challenges during this episode. But yeah, that's why I love them. I think there's the idea of avoiding a night shift or avoiding saying, okay, we've got to come in on the weekend to do this because that's when people aren't going to be working. Or that uh, That's like the the goal, right? You You cannot, I mean... It happens. I certainly come in on a weekend to do a migration at a weekend or overnight or something. But I think that that's definitely the thing you want to avoid, regardless of whether there's there's uh, some level of downtime or whether you're having to coordinate a massive deployment and put like a deploy freeze on at a certain time or something. I think the number one thing you want to avoid is people coming in on their free time and, and doing it. I feel like... Everything that I've ever migrated has been possible to do within working hours, regardless of whether, regardless of whether A, we did it during working hours or uh, B, whether it was, you know, it involved us having some downtime or having to say, all right, you're like no touching or something during those working hours. So by, by, by doing it during working hours and keeping things live, uh, are we saying uh, keeping things live for reading and writing or read only? I don't think Can necessarily we... keeping things live. Uh, all I'm saying is that um, you should strive to be able to do all of your gigantic migrations during working hours, like step zero. Okay, probably not step zero. Step zero, you should probably strive to be able to do your migrations. Step one, you should probably strive to be able to do your migrations without coming in at 2 a.m. on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it highly depends on the service. Like I'm coming from telecommunications, basically ISP providing internet to people and VoIP, which was a new thing back in the day when I was doing this. But th- there are some things that we just couldn't do during the day, mostly because let's say you need to replace some piece of equipment that is because you're a tiny company it's one huge router that you have and everything depends on it and you're not going to be replacing this during the daytime because Mm. first to replace it you need a backup plan which you kind of don't have like your old router is your backup and you cannot just uh gradually shift your customers from one thing to another because your infrastructure is tiny so for some of this kind of things you you need to plan for downtime and do them uh, at mostly at night because again if we're mm. talking internet and telephony people just use it less overnight well that i was gonna ask you that question anyway like in your experience i mean obviously you were you were doing that in a certain time zone right whereas a lot of what yeah. we deal with these days is global which again brings me back to my love to long-running migrations because of how global a lot of even tiny companies are these days. I just don't see the point of planning night shifts anymore because no, your customers because are, because, as you said, yeah. are all over the place. 
Mm. Well, I mean, that was the thing. I mean, this week I was deciding at what time a big scheduled cron job would, would run that, you know, realistically we want to run it with the least amount of impact. But if, you know, if we're being honest about this, there is no time of the day that is the least amount of impact. And I'm sure I could go look at some some graphs that we've got and say, okay, this time is the least impact, but we have to treat everything as if it's like equal equality. Because, uh, you know, today we, you know, we might have large impact on people who are on, who are in San Francisco, that kind of West Coast area. Tomorrow we might get a big client in India. And then the time zones just, just don't match up. So ultimately we need to be able to run whether they're migrations or big cron jobs or backups or whatever, ultimately they just need to run without impact. Yeah, that's why uh, like big migrations are, <clears throat> they, they are the same in this regard. They have the same property and they do, they do impact a lot of services potentially. So one of the requirements I always love to have for these things is that, uh, instead of running some process like, let's say, uh, altering a table in a database, as an example, this process is usually uh, uninterruptible. Like you either have the end result or if something happens in between, it rolls everything back and you have nothing. I prefer to have it in a different way. So uh, basically moving information gradually piece by piece with an ability to pause it for some time in between and then resume it or cancel it altogether and also speed it up or slow it down for instance we start a lot of migrations overnight and then when it gets super close to the morning and people are waking up, let's assume we're talking about one time zone for the sake of simplicity. People are waking up and you start having more traffic and suddenly your migration is impacting the system even more. Or, which is slightly better, your migration is now being affected by your live traffic. So one way or the other, you want to have this ability to regulate the speed and in turn the load that your migration puts on the system. And I think same applies to this long running cron jobs. Yeah, that is true. I mean, we, we had a similar challenge, I think, I don't know, like about a month ago, we wanted to upgrade our Kubernetes cluster, right? From one version to the next. In theory, it should be simple because it's managed. And a lot of things are already done for you. But in reality, that's not what happens. So um, especially with the nodes itself in, in, in Amazon, because they don't manage for you, um, they can, but we're not doing this. And um, the challenge there was, okay, if any happened, um, if the node went down, what is the backup plan? Like, how how are we doing this? How are we distributing this this uh, this whole thing? Are we doing rollouts, uh, migration, or are we doing a one-off kind of thing where we upgrade all the nodes together? And these requirements beforehand, we didn't really talk. Um, so we said, okay, let's upgrade. We didn't really plan for it. Um, so that was that was a mistake. And um, obviously, 
it went down. Uh, something went wrong in the migration. And then if something goes wrong in the migration of the node of the Kubernetes node, the control plane cannot see it anymore. And then you're like, okay, I cannot schedule pods anymore. And if you cannot schedule pods, you cannot serve traffic anymore. Then out of nowhere, customer care was like, are we down? And we're like, yeah, we're actually down. And that's what we uh, call monitoring. Yes. <laughs> True <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, because, yeah. And that's the thing, because the alerting system was also inside the same cluster and inside the same node, because we didn't really do the, the different node for, for, um, for monitoring. And then we're like, oh, shit, actually, Prometheus went down as well. So there is no alerting. There is nothing. And oh, we're this like, might okay. be a good topic for another episode, though, like putting yeah. all eggs in one basket, even if this oh, basket yeah, yeah, is yeah. like super distributed set of baskets with their uh, mirrors and alternate realities and this kind of stuff. Taint <laughs> yeah. all the things. Taint all the things, yes. Um, but yeah, we learned, we learned from that. From that and, uh, and then we're like, okay, next time, and the next upgrade, which actually will happen Monday, um, we're like, cool. Uh, now we have a proper node for, for Prometheus. Now it's split. We have a plan. We have a script to follow. And we're like, okay, cool. And everything is just Terraform apply. And it should kind of work in theory. Um, but at least we learn a few things uh, during, this, uh, during this migration. And, and we're not even a huge company, right? Like we're not, we're not like big companies uh, here in Berlin. But uh, there are a lot of people depending on us. And a lot of people with, you know, they, a simple example, they get their test results and they want to show to their doctor. And imagine they go to the doctor and they cannot show the test results because we're down. Oh, that's um, a whole nother topic. The real yeah, world, yeah, the real exactly. world you, impact of what goes yeah. wrong when your software fails. Oh yeah, exactly. like in pacemakers. Exactly. Like pacemakers, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Regular listeners will understand this reference. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah i mean that's the that's the thing right like um when you're doing such kind of migrations if you don't have a plan or or you don't know the impact of what going down actually means um then you might have a problem and and doing what you just said um max it's like you know like doing big migrations is is cool but also it becomes with a different challenge and different experience that you must have in place before you can actually do it. Um, I think that plays, you know, a big role uh, when when thinking about how to do the migrations properly. At least in our case, it, it did a very big difference. It made a very big difference. Well, yeah. step step zero. I'm going to take back what I said before. Step zero is plan. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and the plan I think needs. <clears throat> To be unpacked a little bit too actually like let's talk about what you have to plan for because like yeah it's easy to say yeah let's just plan and we usually do plan for the migration itself but what we tend to neglect is the rollback obviously who thinks of that uh, then there are things <clears throat> like basically who do we need to involve or at least inform who are our stakeholders what do we say to our customers? How do we communicate with them? Should we? Do we know that we're going to fail gradually here and there? Or if mm -hmm. something is affected and it cannot gradually fail, are we aware of that? <clears throat> uh, I actually have uh, a mind map in front of me, which I 
super quickly put together right before the recording session. But now I'm trying to read it and it's not that easy. It seems, <laughs> it looks so cool, but just translating this to sentences is not easy. Since we're showing off, I also prepared because I watched one YouTube video about tiny houses. Aha. Uh -huh. so nice. There we go. Thoroughly prepared for this. Awesome. Yeah. So again, the reference to one of our episodes, there's this thing called a checklist. Turns out these are super handy when it comes to uh, big or even short migrations with or without downtime. Uh, just have a simple checklist. I think last time I was doing this, it was just a simple Google Doc or something that was shared with all the participants. You just simply put their list of steps you need to take and then another list of steps. How do you check whether everything is working? And you need to check whether it was working before you start it because sometimes you start the migration and there is another outage happening. So it can affect your work or you can uh, make the outage worse or you can suddenly fix it without anyone noticing. Also happened. Uh, yeah, and you obviously have another checklist to check things when you're done. And you have the whole, have to have the definition of done or definition of success, whatever you want to call it. Like what is the successful migration? And uh, also there is, um, how should I call this? Sort of the definition of uh, a stable intermediate state. Let's call it like that. When you're doing a long running migration, quite often there would be a bunch of steps that start the migration. And then you need to make sure that the system is stable so it can continuously do this migration without affecting other systems. And then sometime later, sometimes it takes even months, no joke, uh, you still go through the last checklist to make sure that everything is fine. Yeah, it's, it's like a plane. I don't think I've ever had a migration that takes like months. Um, oh no, actually we had. Right. It's more about that. Is it the data volume or is it because there are problems that come up and then you have to solve them and it takes a long time? Uh, could be both, but I think my record or not my, my, my team's record was what, uh, four, five weeks just because of the amount of data. I think we were moving about 140 terabytes of pictures from just a simple disk rate array to uh, an object storage, something S3-like, but in-house. Was just a lot of data to move. Hmm. Okay. Did they need more JPEG? It sounds like they, they needed more JPEG. <laughs> yep, I was actually JPEG. <laughs> yeah, has to be. <laughs> but more JPEG. You need more of those artifacts. Just yeah, compress, yeah, sure. just save them all again. Compression yeah. factor of 80%, just done. Yeah. That's a subject for another episode, like <laughs> resizing JPEG on the fly and caching it. A oh, whole different ball game. I've got some stories about that, but yes. Yeah. So what else do we need to plan for? I have here the called. Oh yeah. Go, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's it. Regression. Regression is, is important. Like you mentioned the checklist, which is mm -hmm. great. Um, but also how do you, you know, how do you revert in, in, if something goes bad before the intermediate step 
where the system is stable, right? Like, how do you make sure you can roll back um, whatever you've done, especially if you're dealing with multiple systems, not a single one or a single database? Uh, that becomes a little bit challenging, at least in my experience. Oh, yeah. And actually, that's a very good point. <clears throat> uh, I would say rollback should be the part of your checklist. Like mm -hmm. after you put another item on your checklist, or if not the checklist, if it's still the original plan, like the list of steps one need to do to achieve the next stable state, you should be 100% sure that you can roll back after any step. Yeah. And if there are steps after which you cannot roll back, you need additional planning for this, either to make it possible to roll back or you fall back to backups, which is always slow and troublesome. Uh, right. Assuming you have them. Last, yeah. like last resort even... as well, I think. But I, I mean, um, you're, you know, you're talking about being able to roll back, which I can't disagree with. But ultimately, the best kind of migrations are the ones where you, you don't need to roll back. There is no yeah. need for you to do that. That can, sure. come, that can come from... So I think a lot of the time... If an engineer hears us talking about, you know, this episode of the podcast is about migrations, yay. Um, the, the first thing that's going to come into your head as a, a developer, less of the DevOps guy, here we go again. The, the thing, first thing that comes into your head is whatever your framework or language or whatever of choices usually has a migrations system for performing changes to your database schema. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think um, either you're doing a simple one of those or you're doing one with an element of risk that might take a long time because of a lot of data in a table and you're changing an index or, or something like that. Which, I mean, one, that's very tricky to roll back from because you, you say, okay, we're changing the index on this table that's several hundred gigabytes. We need to do this. So this has to run all the way through. Or two, you can get around the fact of needing a rollback whatsoever, because let's say you're you're moving data from, uh, let's say you've got, a, a, let's say you were silly and you put a lot of data in JSON fields in MySQL or Postgres or whatever. Why and wouldn't you? then thought, oh, wait, no, we're using a relational database. Probably we should have relational data. So you run a migration to extract the fields you need from, from JSON and move them into more relational structural data format, which is all great until you're dealing with multiple gigabytes of data and then that can take, or, or terabytes of data, and then that can take a long time. Um, and ultimately, you know, there are better ways of doing that. For example, you might, instead of running a traditional migration, run a script that is going to like read from that table, push it to a queue system, say rabbit or something, and then have a consumer that is taking that data and transforming it into the new format and inserting it into the new tables. And then that way you've kind of avoided the need for there to be any kind of migration because in future you wait until all of that data has been queued up and gone through and everything. And then you just swap the source of what you're reading from. So there, I guess what I'm saying is either you can avoid needing there to be a big bang migration full stop or you can't and there's not really a middle ground there because if you're changing an index you're changing the index 
or if I have to say that there is still a rollback in this. It's just provided to you by the database. It's still a rollback. It's a valid thing. Like when you uh, do any of the, what are those called? Data, whatever, I forgot. Basically altering a table or creating or changing an index. Those ones do have rollback provided by the database. If it fails, it'll roll everything back. So there you go. Like your data is still in place. How much do you trust your database? That's another story. That's why backups. Well, usually... and plus if, if that gets through, you know, several hours or even days of doing the thing, creating the index, and then you roll back, well, what's happened for those several days? Like what situation have you been in? That, that kind of transitional state might not have been a good place to be in for several days. Yeah, that's another step in my mind map I want to talk about. Please do. Uh, yeah, so the next uh, point I have here is called performance. And there are several things we need to consider here. Obviously, we need to assess before we start this, how much time roughly would it take to actually move this amount of data? Because if it's, um, I don't know, let's say we figured out that it's going to take only five minutes, maybe you don't really need to even plan as much. Obviously be ready for complications, but five minutes is something easy. But ultimately that comes down to knowing your hardware as well, which is crucial, you know? Oh yeah, sure. And also figuring out things like, uh, not figuring out things, but basically knowing the performance of this will tell you whether you can still go with, let's say, changing a column name in a database, or you need some kind of slower but more robust approach. Like if you're doing this on a test bed and it tells you that it'll take an hour, you can assume that in life it may easily take 20 hours because of the additional load. And then you definitely need to fall back to another solution like the one you mentioned with the publishers and consumers doing stuff or just a simple script running on the side and waking up every like uh, half a second and just reading 10 rows from the database and inserting them in another table, even that would work. And also when it, we're talking about performance, we'd uh, like to have something to indicate the progress of this migration, whether it's a one-step uh, migration like altering a table or changing the index or a very, very long-running one like moving terabytes of data from one storage to another. And with the progress, we also have some ETAs because we'll have to report this to the stakeholders and we might need to notify our customers about that, hey, we're having an outage or we have degraded performance. Oh, or just scheduling downtime and being somewhat accurate with that estimate, yeah. Also that, yes. So yeah, these steps are important and actually, again, going back to me loving long-running migrations controlled ones it's super easy to get uh this kind of things from those like you can never predict how long will it take to do alter table on a production database i i have not met the person who was able to do that with any acceptable level of accuracy it's always like two days off the real value <laughs> you do this on your staging database and then you run this on life and it never ends and you plan the night shift for like two hours and then it takes a day. I think staging is a whole different topic, but uh, we can come back to that. Um, yeah. 
But okay, even as a valid example, and we were doing this in, I think we all have done this at least once, when you take a copy of your production database and you run your migrations on that database, it's still going to be But it doesn't have the same amount of traffic and stuff happening to it, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So what I'm trying to say, even if it's not your staging environment where you're working with a a reduced data set, it's still going to take very different time to complete. And again, with uh, some more carefully planned migrations done at a very slow and controlled pace, you can actually see the progress. And another thing that you can have with that, you can usually pause those. For instance, if it's just a consumer moving data from one table to another, you just stop it and then nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Obviously, make sure that your system is altered in order to know what to do when, let's say, there is no data in the new location. Kind of a regular thing, you change your system first so it would know that, hey, I'm reading data from the new place and if data is not there, I need to go and check the old place. You yeah. do the same for reads and writes. Or you don't then... even do that. You you don't even make the system aware of the new place whatsoever until after you're or, complete. Or that, yeah. yeah. It depends on many things. Yeah. Like... But I think um, Italo was alluding to, uh, he's, you know, I mentioned that, oh, we've not done a migration that lasted months before, and Italo alluded to one that did last months. And the, the reason this lasted months is because, you know, um, we announced, hey, like, this is the way we're going to do things moving forwards. But there was uh, what complicated this one was that it required a lot of input from a lot of other teams. This was less of a kind of, we're going to migrate the stuff, and when the stuff is migrated, the stuff will be done and everyone will be happy. And more of a, we've made the new thing, and now it's up to you guys to do it. And that becomes, I'm going to coin the phrase here, cultural migration. Oh, we no, can have a different episode on that. I think we can. Yeah, that of course, huge. we can. We can completely talk about that elsewhere. But um, I think that's kind of interesting to talk about in the context of migrations, right? Because, um, I, I the one Italo was alluding to, I believe, was uh, when in the past we move. We, Italo and I provided the Kubernetes infrastructure for our developers to to use, and then said, "All right, guys." None of you are using Kubernetes now. Here are the examples. Off you go. And then nothing happened. And then nothing happened. And then nothing happened. <laughs> I'm very familiar with this. Something very similar, uh, without going into too much detail. I, I'm working with something very similar uh, currently. And it's. I think that the, 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 the term cultural migration is very appropriate there, Kieran. Um, it's not enough to just make something and solve all the technical problems. If it's a migration, uh, not, not not maybe not a database, but a, an entire infrastructure, uh, it you you need to get all of the users of this to buy into the need to use it, and quite often the need isn't there. I mean, they're building their software, they're shipping it, they're hosting it, uh, everything's working from their point of view. Maybe the pain isn't so high that they really want to. Um, go through the hassle of learning the new the new platform to, to use it. I don't know if this maybe this fits the context of this of this theme of this topic uh, in a way. Oh it totally does. I was yeah. just 
trying to indicate like the sheer amount of oh, yeah. <laughs> stuff and information. I think it's even more complicated. Like every time human beings are involved, it everything becomes much more complicated. Oh yeah. Different how, how was it in the beginning? Like Italo, Kieran, were you guys just doing tech support for a long time? Oh yeah, we did. I remember, I remember we doing this, uh, I think it was a weekly training where I gave the same presentation like two times a week for a good three yeah, months it was or something, right. something like that. Yeah. And we used to rotate who would give this kind of presentations, like how Kubernetes works and how exactly works for us. Cause we, we didn't really had a vanilla kind of Kubernetes. So we had like a few things very specific to our, uh, use case. Um, some people were buying in pretty positively, I would say, like, cause they were excited. Okay. New technology. Cool. Awesome. Let me try to learn this, uh, super motivated. Some people didn't give a damn about it. So they were like, yeah, I'm just here. Cool. Yeah. I have to do this. Awesome. Blah, blah, blah. I know how to do it. I'll figure it out. And some people were, um, more proactive and tried even beforehand. So we had all sorts of people like. Motivated well, I mean, ones, we even had the ones. outwardly hostile people who were just saying, oh, yeah. you know, no, I don't, I don't want this. Yes, we had this this kind of people as well, and we had we had to manage their expectations in the end, and it re it really comes down to how you, as not only a manager but a leader, can actually convince or make sure these people understand the value behind it, and you know, get them to to understand why we're doing this. That was a challenge part for me, but uh, we did it. We, we did it in the end, and even the the people against the idea eventually they started using it, and they felt successful because they could deploy something there by themselves without the need for help. And they're like, "Ah, yeah, now I'm using this." And I remember a few people that did this, and and I was like, "Oh, cool, awesome, you're doing it, cool." <laughs> so in the end, it worked. I think yeah. that there was. Um there were some people who were just kind of the big red button. I hate change honk kind of. Yep. Yeah. I guess also like, and it happens to me quite often when I face something new, not that I do it every time, but occasionally it's just suddenly you don't know anything mm -hmm. and you feel kind of like an idiot. And that's not the pleasant feeling to have. Uh, of course. Yeah. A lot of people just don't like it. I, I mean, of course not, but, um, ultimately you know the solution that we came up with uh, and the reason there were many reasons why kubernetes was that solution but there were other solutions that we looked into before settling on that but you know we were responding to a problem that the, the especially ironically the uh, the developers who were most against the idea and most pressing that i hate change button were the ones who were shouting the loudest about, hey, we have all these problems with our deployment environment and everything is going wrong. And, and Exactly. Yeah, but that's a very special how, kind of people. Yeah. How much work did you do to, 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 to buy them into the solution? You know, like, did they agree that it was a good idea to solve the problem in that way with Kubernetes? Or did you just go away and design a solution and then ask them to implement it? Uh, it was somewhere um, in the middle, I think. Somewhere in the middle, that's what I would say. We we asked for input, but after we already had set our minds into which kind of technology we would actually use. I think ultimately, um, you know, I, I did a lot of interviewing on, on what are the exact problems that you guys are facing and 
Um, yeah, man, I was a product owner for a few months. Uh, and, you know, ultimately we, we nailed down the requirements just right. And then we looked at what is the technical solution for, for those requirements. In the same way as if you were a freelancer, right, you, you know, you would nail down what the requirements were. Or if you were dealing with any other stakeholder, you would nail down what the requir- requirements were. But your client, frankly, doesn't give a damn whether you are using a data mapper or active record ORM. Because right. your client just, just cares that the stupid thing works. In the end, I think uh, those people were actually complaining about because if you put into perspective, we um, we had passed through a migration like a year before that or, or maybe a year and a half before that where everything would finally go immutable with, uh, I think it was Ansible that we were using. And then that, it that, wasn't immutable though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was supposed, it was to, supposed be to be immutable. It wasn't immutable, but it was supposed to be immutable. Like there, there was a lot of preaching into that area. Um, but eventually, like everybody had to learn Ansible, and boom, there, there, there were, there we were. Um, and a year and a half later, another big change came, and boom, now everybody has to learn YAML, Kubernetes stuff, and uh, be a YAML senior engineer. And, and that was upsetting for some people and some people liked it. Some people didn't. Um, and some people are just, you know, they like to put cows everywhere and, and that also <laughs> happens. Um, they don't care about what you're using. They just like cows. And, uh, so yeah, that, that was a problem in the end. But again, I like, I always like to quote, uh, the not quote, but remember at least the, um, the point in time where someone was complaining, someone that used, usually made a lot of noise in one of our tribes there, were complaining about Kubernetes, uh, this doesn't work, you guys built something that doesn't work, you're just putting more complexity into my work, I'm going to keep with my whatever PHP microservice I have deploying with Ansible that works. And that, that, that's fair enough, uh, up to a certain point. And then out of nowhere, don't know how, this person came to came to me and he was like, look, my manager said I have to deploy this to Kubernetes. Can you help me out? I was like, yeah, sure. And then gave just a little bit of the tips to the guy. And then he was like, okay, cool. I'm going to try to do this. And again, once he did it, he felt the that pleasure that sometimes we developers feel when we deploy something that actually works. And they were like, awesome. Okay, cool. I can deploy this. Now I'm going to do it for all my services. And out of nowhere, he was building a nice templating helm that would do something. And, you know, he got into it. Um, so that, that, was, uh, that was a cool example. Yeah. So that is something that, uh, that I like to always remember. Because sometimes people just need the right motivation, uh, you know, before they... Or, yeah, it should be before they start complaining. But in that case, it happened after. I also think that sometimes uh, there are there are people who are purists. Uh, they oh, yeah. love they love their craft. They they truly um, they truly find find their profession joyous, and and that's an amazing thing. Um, but but maybe sometimes uh, people can uh, lose a little bit uh, track of of what the of what the work is actually for. 
and mm-hmm. uh, maybe get a little bit to tie it up to, with uh, with the purity of the solution and things need to be as perfect as possible and um, can 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 delay important work like like migrations just because they're not completely convinced that the approach is 100% correct. Now this is very tricky to deal with. Um, very very tricky to deal with like how how do you how do you get these people to buy in like do you just ignore them <laughs> do you spend a lot of time uh convincing them uh, or do you do you find that their 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 arguments are actually valid uh you know like uh i find this i find this really 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 tricky in being a lead yeah if if the arguments are constructive and people are not just making noise for the sake of it that is totally fine, and and we should always accept that. Um, yeah. The specific case that I mentioned, there was also like this this kind of feeling of the person was sort of pissed out, pissed out because the idea didn't really come from their team or something or from him, um, because their personality was like that, and we knew that. But but that's fine. Like after he changed a lot, and uh, afterwards he was pretty friendly and you know helping out in the migration of services that the, the, their team own so in the end i think we achieved what we had to achieve which is do the migration but we we passed through some interesting problems and challenges cultural challenges i would say i think ultimately it became almost a marketing problem um and you know for for the solution that we came up with, like I say, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to other people and saying, okay, what are the problems uh, that you're facing and, and how can we, how can we solve that? So ultimately we were reasonably confident that what we built did solve teams problems. And then when we did see teams migrating to that with, you know, some kind of incentives and coercion to, to migrate to that, um, the, you know, the, the early adopters were saying, yeah, this is great. This really solves the problems we've been having. And obviously you're going to have some holdouts and that's not just software engineering, that's life, right? Um, but we were reasonably convinced that, that we had found the right solution by the time it got to kind of dealing with these, with these last few holdouts. Um, what, what it came down to uh, when I mentioned marketing, you know, you're going to have your early adopters, your ones who are excited, you know, in this case, it's Kubernetes. Oh, exciting new technology. I've not used this before. Yeah. Like I, I want to jump on this. I want to learn this. You're going to have your holdouts, but ultimately you, you want to convert the kind of the critical mass of users. This, I mean, again, I almost sound like a business podcast at this point rather than a, rather than a technology one. Right. Because, you know, everyone's seen the bell curve graph of like early adopters to oh no okay no one can hear me I'm continuing anyway or not Kieran. Oh, there he is. Welcome oh, back, Kieran. He's back. 
Cool. Yes, that that was terrible. I don't know. My internet dropped for a second. Vodafone, Vodafone is being Vodafone. It's not Vodafone. I wish it was Vodafone. Oh. It's Eins and Eins. <laughs> ah, right. Eins and Eins doing Eins and Eins things. Well, now I don't remember what I was saying. Okay, so <laughs> you've got your early adopters. You've got your holdouts who are never going to be convinced until the last possible minute. But somewhere in the middle is the majority. And you, you've got to convince these guys that mm -hmm. what you've delivered is, is worth adopting. Because otherwise, you know, if, if you can't get past that kind of critical mass of adoption curve, whatever you're delivering is going to be a failure, right? Yeah. So the way we did that was with what you might call marketing. Um, we had... I mean, we were doing, like I say, we were doing these presentations and they were very fun. We even had stickers. We, yeah, we had, we got <laughs> stickers made for our solution and everyone had yeah. the stickers on their laptops and we were able to kind of show those off to, to people. Um, we had uh, posters. I, I mean, all right, this was less for this problem, but for another specific migration problem, you know, I made a bunch of posters and stuck them up all over and said, like, this is, you know, this is how you do the thing. Isn't it easy? Isn't it great? Doesn't it solve, like, 90% of your problems? Well, go and do it then, you moron. Um, <laughs> it, it wasn't far off, honestly. <laughs> um, but ultimately, you know, it does become a marketing exercise. It does become you... Uh, essentially trying to show off to, to people like this is why the thing that we've made is better and this is why you should use it. Yeah, in a company of this size, I don't really think there is any other way to do it. I don't yeah. think it's necessarily a, a company of any size. I mean, ultimately what you're doing is, you know, I'm in a company now of 15-ish of and I would use similar techniques. Maybe I wouldn't get stickers printed, but, you know, I might well uh give talks record webinars yeah. i mean you can also get 15 people in a room theoretically and, ju yeah, and just that, that, that and just ask right yeah. in their face like what the hell is your problem good luck doing this with 150 people and also I mean, let's... Good, luck, good luck doing that in a company when no two people are in the same country at the moment but yes uh um, yeah i agree agreed yeah that that's again but... a different kind of story like doing all these things remote completely different story it's it, it's hugely not you know you record a you record a zoom call with someone where you explain to that one someone this is the thing that we've made and it's great and you know you 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 do a presentation over zoom you screen share your stupid powerpoint slides or something you record that you encourage everyone to watch it you make slack emojis of an icon of your solution like, yeah, I mean, step I, I, step zero before that is you make a logo or something and you you brand it as as if you're marketing a product, but instead of marketing it to the world, you're marketing it to the engineers in your software organization. Yeah, because that's I, what you're doing exactly. I, I, meant, I think that we forget. Sorry, go on, Max. Yeah, sorry, I meant more of the steps before you get to this point. I guess now we can yeah. assume how easy it is to do this remotely, but I was talking about preparing the actual migration and informing even initial adopters about the solution. And again, the difference between a big and smaller company is that, is that right? Like when you are in a smaller company, people will feel more part of your solution. Even if you came up with the idea and implemented yourself, 
because the communication flows much easier or should flow much easier when you are a smaller company, people will naturally uh, be more informed. And, you know, it's, it's faster the way the communication flows. When you're in a company with 300 developers, uh, the communication is different. Like it goes you know, from team to team, from tribe to tribe, then eventually gets to someone that didn't even know that was happening. Yeah, um, it's also fewer yeah. different groups of people with different opinions and everything. Yes. When you have 10 people, again, it's much easier to kind of figure out what's wrong. And then you, you have just 10 conversations to have, basically, instead of 100 conversations. Hmm. Yes and no, because ultimately... um you might have, you know, there, there might be a, an order of magnitude more of people to talk to. But if you're, you know, I'm in a, a company of 15-ish people working completely remotely versus a company of, let's say, 300 people working all in the same office. But ultimately, the communication problems in, of all the people in the same office were much larger than the small group of people working remotely. And yeah. I don't think that the 300 people in the same office, the communication issues are going to be that much different to the communication issues of 300 people working remotely. No, yeah. At that kind of scale, it doesn't really matter whether you're in the same damn room or not, because no yes. one's listening anyway. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, I just, I still think that with more people, you just have more randomness. You're like your entropy is through the roof. Just, mm. just because of that, not, not because communication is not working. No, no, communication is working absolutely fine. That's why you are overwhelmed with all these requests coming from 300 people. And isn't that what we're all fighting in the end anyway? Entropy. So if you enjoyed this episode, you can check out more of what we've got at criticalchannel.io. I think. I, I think that's what I bought. What did I buy? Yeah, I saw we working last time, so I think that that should be available. <laughs> All right, good enough. Criticalchannel.io. You can find out what uh, you can find out what, what other podcast episodes we've got. You can find out more about us there. You can follow us on Twitter at Criticalio. Criticalio. Critical IO on Twitter. Uh, you can find me, Kieran AJP, uh, Maxime at Zilax2. Yes, Zilax2. With the two. Yes. Uh, Italo at Italo Vietro and Pedro at Pugas Candeas. Uh, and exactly. uh, yeah, send us, send us a message, send us a tweet, and we look forward to next time. Ooh. Hey, though. Boom. Done. That'll do. Bye-bye.